Well, this whole uh, section that Kristen read for us, which is no small section, um, it's, a long, it's a long one, but this whole section gives us an introduction to King Saul, and we know uh, that the people of Israel have asked for a king back in chapter 8. Saul's going to be this king they've asked for, uh, but we're, we're introduced to Saul in a kind of roundabout way. Uh, so things begin in the first part of chapter 9 with Saul leaving home, searching for these donkeys that his father had lost. And then the section of narrative comes to a conclusion in verse 16 of chapter 10 where Saul returns home, uh, not necessarily having found the donkeys himself, but instead he's returned home with this anointing as king. Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting section. It's a roundabout a way to introduce us to this individual. And it's, it's the second part of this narrative that we're going to focus on this morning. Like I said, uh, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 9. And, uh, and as we're, we're following along, we can remember the, the purpose and the significance for which we have this narrative here. So, so last time we talked about how something is going on in this passage that reaches, on, uh, reaches beyond the mere retelling of a series of, of narrative events around the establishing of a monarchy in Israel. Uh, if we just read this section at a quick pass, we might think that this story is actually uh, kind of lacking in any real direct theme. Uh, Saul's all of a sudden uh, uh, looking for, for, for donkeys on the one hand, and then he's at this sacrificial meal with a prophet, and then he's anointed as king, seemingly uh, somewhat out of the blue, and then, and then he has this strange experience with a band of prophets, and then he's back home, but his uncle's greeting him instead of his dad, who we're told is worried about him. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole story can strike us as fairly disconnected at first pass, but when we dig in a bit, we see that, that, that something very critical is being communicated throughout these verses. And, and that is the fact that while things are fractured in Israel, um, so while Israel as a people and even Saul as an individual are fractured, uh, they reflect human sin and weakness, Israel and, and Saul do. Remember how Israel wanted a king like the nations, which was a, a comment on their idolatry back in chapter 8. Saul himself, like we saw last time, is lacking in so many ways in the beginning of chapter 9. But while Saul as a people and Israel, or uh, Saul as a person and Israel as a nation show themselves to be very fractured in multiple ways as we engage in this narrative, even amid that fracture that's represented here, the Lord uh, in His grace continues to move things forward in fulfilling his purposes. So in the people's idolatrous request for a king, and then in Saul's own weakness, we see not only the fractured effects of sin, which are very present here, uh, but through that disorder, we also see uh, that God's gracious plan is shining through, a plan which uh, we know climactically leads us to, to anticipate the coming of Christ. So, it, so in this passage, we have both fracture in terms of human sin and weakness. And in this passage, we also have fulfillment, uh, at least pointers to fulfillment, as we see God moving history toward His ultimate saving purposes in Jesus. And, and again, as we come to a section of Scripture like this, the, the presence of both fracture and fulfillment is important for us to see because uh, sin and weaknesses are realities that are all too familiar with us uh, to us in our own lives. We're, we're very much aware that we can go down paths that bring 
destruction, fracture uh, to our own spiritual lives. We go in ways that are contrary to God and His kindness. We won't know what it looks like to, uh, to search for alternatives to God Himself, thinking that things will provide the hope and help that we ultimately need when only God Himself can ultimately do that. We know what it is to have hearts that are, that are mired by disordered ambitions and things of that nature. Uh, but like we see the Lord doing for Israel in this section, we know that, that our folly is not stronger than God's grace. And in fact, more often than not, it's actually through the fracture of our own lives that God puts His saving kindness on greatest display. And so this passage, is as ancient as it may be, as we read about this beginning of Israel's monarchy, so far removed from us historically and contextually, as, as ancient as this passage may be, uh, this gospel truth shines through very clearly in that while we may be fractured, God's grace is abounding and overcoming in its application to us, which is something we need to continually be renewed in. Because as we sit under this truth this morning, we can't undervalue how much we need this constant reminder in our Christian life. That the good news of the gospel is not like that old blues song goes, which is get right church and let's go home. It's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is is that left to ourselves, we can't get it right. But the good news of what Christ has done is that the grace of God proves to be stronger than our sin. He overpowers our own lacking for the fulfillment of His kind and redemptive purposes. It's a a strength that, that ultimately climaxes in the coming of the perfect King Jesus. And it's a strength that the Lord provides for us as we're then renewed to walk in His way. So so with that in mind, we keep going in this text here and we see how how the example that the narrative provides of this this event that goes on ultimately helps us to work through some of these these truths in our own lives. So uh, we're going going to look at the rest of this section in two parts. Uh, The first part we'll take beginning in verse 25 uh, and we'll call it Saul's divine provision. And then from verses 10 to 16 of chapter 10, we'll finish out with some residual tension. So Saul's divine provision and then some residual tension. Um, sometimes if the headings rhyme, I'm always worried that, that the headings came together better than what's under the headings, but we'll see, we'll see how it goes. So Saul's divine provision, uh, verses, this is verse 9 uh, to verse, uh, or sorry, verse 25 of chapter 9 uh, up through verse <clears throat> 9 of chapter 10. Too many 9s and 10s here. Um, I will just give a disclaimer as we, as we get into this. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 111, The psalmist says, greater the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. And as we come under the scriptures, we we want to remind ourselves of the fact that studying the word of God is an enormous privilege that we enjoy. And it's not just a privilege we enjoy, but it's actually something that brings us joy. It's it's something that that we delight in and are happy to do. And a passage like this, I just say that because a passage like this is going to require uh, that we we do some study today. But in that is is, is the source of joy for us as Christian believers. This is something we, we long to do. So... Um, so here we go. Uh, last we left things, if you remember, Samuel had, had told Saul to go to this banquet hall where Saul, uh, Samuel had invited some 30, uh, 30 or so men, and this feast was being prepared around a sacrificial ceremony. And we saw in that event that Saul was given uh, this particular portion of the meat offered, which was reserved for the priests and the priest's family. 
Uh, we studied that last time, and it's something we'll touch on here again in a moment. But now we pick up on the narrative in verse 25, where Samuel and Saul have, have left this meal. They're speaking together in verse 25. And then in verse 26, they rise early the next morning, and Samuel is about to send Saul on his way. Ultimately, he's going to send Saul back home. That's where Saul's journey is going to take him. Um, but at this point, we do well to remember just exactly what kind of man the narrator of the story has exposed Saul to be, because that will be important to make sense of this next section. So last time we talked about how, how one function of Hebrew storytelling is that of, of revealing an individual's character in the first words they speak in a, in a story. And Saul's first words are words, as we remember from last time, of an Im impatient quitter. That's, that's how Saul is revealed here. Back in verse 5, Saul and his servant, they can't find the donkeys that they've been sent out to look for. And what does Saul say? Come on, let's go back. Let's just go back. Let's, let's quit this thing. Um, so right away we see Saul's lacking. He's this impatient quitter. And then following that, we have all these examples of Saul's weakness. So, so the servant is the one showing initiative in verse 6, not Saul. Verses 7 and 8, Saul doesn't have the gift needed to visit a prophet. The servant has to provide the gift. Verse 10, Saul actually commends the servant's directives they're the good that's the good word Saul says instead of Saul exercising the leadership he should and 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 giving the good word to to, to this search party and then in verses 12 and 13 the young women they meet when they get uh, into the town where Samuel is they appear to to speak nice and slow with a whole bunch of extra details in order to make sure Saul understands how to find uh, Samuel so hurry go go up let's go right Saul might have stood taller than all others in Israel, like verse 2 tells us, but Saul's also presented as fairly dim. Um, he's a man who's lacking. And, and, and as we get into this next section, uh, it's this, in this next section that the Lord uh, makes a surprising statement because, uh, because we could be excused for thinking at this point that it's all hopeless now. Cl clearly, if, if Saul's left to himself, he's not going to be any good to the people whatsoever. But then we get into that next section, and in verse 16, the Lord prepares Samuel, uh, the prophet, to anoint Saul, and he says this to him. He says, Saul will save the people from the Philistines. So, so there's this imminent threat of attack, and the Lord says that he's going to use deficient Saul in an extremely uh, powerful way. He's going to use him in a, in a majestic, in a victorious way. He's going to use Saul to rescue his people, which immediately begs the question, how in the world is this going to take place? How, how can Saul be of any use to anybody at all? He can't even lead a donkey-finding expedition successfully. How is he going to lead a nation into battle and lead a nation into battle victoriously, no less? Um, I, I told our home group this on Wednesday night, so excuse hearing it again for those of you who did, but this week I talked on the phone uh, with a pastor friend with Brandon Heron, uh, who, who some of you will know, remember Ian and Katie Schneidmiller, he's Ian's brother-in-law, but he's a pastor in Sandpoint, Idaho, and it just so happens that they're also preaching through Samuel. Uh, he's, uh, he's ahead of me in the text. Uh, everybody's ahead of me in, in text whenever that comes up, but, uh, but, but we, were, we were talking about, about this together and we were commenting on Samuel's uh, character qualities and Brandon made the statement that Saul's the kind of person who needs to take off his socks to count to 20. And, and I thought that was just a great, a great way to illustrate. First of all, that just sounds like Brandon. But, but, but that's a great way to illustrate what's going on here with Saul. He's, he's totally right. Saul might have been this physically impressive man standing taller than everybody else, but Saul basically brings nothing else to the table. He, he, he might be tall, dark, and handsome, but he has to take his socks off to count to 20. He's this, this kind of person. But the Lord has said he's going to use Saul, this, this deficient donkey finder, he's going to use Saul to rescue his people from the, from the mighty Philistines. 
So, so where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us very aware that the Lord must extend some kind of extraordinary provision to Saul if any of this is going to take place. The Lord must work in such a way that deficient Saul becomes very capable for this task at hand. And as we read on in these verses, that is exactly what we see happen. Saul receives divine provision. So in verse 26, we've read that Samuel and Saul got up early. Now, we might read that as a mere textual detail, but that is a little statement that should give us a great deal of hope because getting up early is what people do often when they're used by the Lord in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you have to get up early to be a good Christian. It's not, it's not that getting up early is necessarily extra holy or something like that. Thank God for that. that that's, that's not what, what we're saying. But getting up early is one of those markers in biblical narrative that tells us to watch what God is going to do with this person. Watch what's going to happen next. So, for example, Abraham rose early in Genesis 22 before he's called to almost sacrifice Isaac. Uh, Jacob rose early in Genesis 28 to commemorate the place there at Bethel where the Lord renewed his covenant with him. Uh, Moses rose early to go up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Job rose early to offer sacrifices because he was afraid his children might be kind of sinful and the narrative is establishing him as a righteous man. We read in Mark 1, don't we, how Jesus rises early to find a secluded place to pray before then he goes out on his, on his, on his uh, uh, preaching expedition to the villages. And in fact, already back in 1 Samuel 1, uh, we read that Elkanah and Hannah, so Samuel's dad and mom, they rose early to worship before they returned home, and, and then Hannah's prayers are answered and, and Samuel is born. So all that to say, we're wondering how in the world there can be any hope for the people of Israel with Saul being this man God is using, and just about the point where we're reaching, reaching rock bottom in our concern, we have this little narrative clue that at least tells us to watch what happens with a little more hope than we might otherwise have, because they got up early. Okay, they got up early. Think things, things might be okay. People getting up early in the biblical narrative is good. We'll pay attention to that. And it's a good thing that we do because what follows are three expressions of divine provision that come for Saul from the Lord. And we'll just work through these qu quickly. But, uh, but first of all, you see there in, in uh, chapter 9, verse 27 to chapter 10, verse 1, we have this, uh, this account of Saul being anointed as king by Samuel. Uh, Samuel actually sends the servant on ahead of them, we read. And he, he then promises to reveal God's word to Saul. Then he takes a flask of oil, pours it on Saul's head, kisses Saul, which is an indication of royalty. You think about that in Psalm chapter 2. What are we called to do in Psalm 2? Well, kiss the son, kiss the son whom God is going to set up as king. So it's this reflection of, of, of homage there to royalty. And then Samuel says, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Um, so provision for Saul comes now through this sacred anointing process that so far in the scriptures has mainly been reserved for priests. But now Saul is anointed uh, ultimately by the, by the Lord in this narrative. Saul's anointed as king. He's set apart for royal purpose. So that's, that's there first of all in terms of provision for Saul. And then the provision continues because in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 10 now, um, Divine provision comes in the form of what we might call uh, confirmation or affirmation. There are these signs that are given. So, so next in verses 2 to 6, Samuel tells Saul that three things will happen to him, which are later referred to as signs, as, as Saul goes on his journey home. And each of these is actually going to confirm what Saul's already been experiencing in chapter 9 so far. Uh, so the first sign there in verse 2 is centered on Saul's relief from his first task, uh, because after all, he's king now. 
So verse 2, Saul's going to come upon two men at Rachel's grave who will tell him that the, the donkeys you, you went looking for have been found. Now your dad's worried about you, not the donkeys. So Saul is, in a sense, released from his former task. He's going to be released in his former task there. That'll be confirming to him. The second sign will come at the Oak of Tabor where three men are going to meet Saul bringing uh, goats and loaves of bread and wine on their way to Bethel. So Bethel is a place of worship, and these men are carrying uh, familiar elements uh, involved in a sacrifice. And Samuel says Saul's going to meet these men who are carrying sacrificial items, and they're actually going to give some of their sacrifice to Saul, what they're bringing. And Saul is, is to accept it from them. So if you remember last time, Saul was given the priestly portion at the sacrificial meal. Now here, that priestly element is reconfirmed again with Saul. It's, it's, it's going to be something he, he uh, is, is reminded of. And then thirdly, Saul's going to come to Gibeah, which we know from the end of chapter 10 is his hometown. Saul comes to Gibeah, uh, which, which notably has a, has a Philistine outpost there. And when Saul gets to Gibeah, he's not going to fight the Philistines just yet, but instead a group of prophets uh, will come down prophesying. And with that, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come powerfully on Saul, and he'll prophesy too. Um, so, so here we see Saul's going to be confirmed, ultimately, uh, not just in, in, the, in the office of, of king, as Samuel anoints him, but he's also going to be affirmed, confirmed by these signs in the office of prophet and priest, which was something else uh, indicated in the meal last time. You remember the, 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 the eating of the priestly portion that we talked about uh, was actually connected not just to the priest, but to the priest's family. So by Samuel, who is known most obviously as a prophet, by Samuel giving him his portion, the priestly portion, there's a, a sense in which he's inviting Saul into his family, uh, which we'll see later on. There's these references to the family of the prophets and who's their father and these kinds of things. So he's, he's brought into the prophet's family. Um, and, and, and so this just reminds us in these confirming signs that are given as they would have reminded Saul to a certain degree, though each of these categories will ultimately prove to be categories of failure ultimately for Saul. In the meantime, we do see at, at least at the moment and for a time, these are going to be confirming signs to him and that what the Lord has said is going to take place is going to happen to him uh, to, to, a, to a certain extent. He's, he's going to be affirmed in this uh, kingly role, which also includes a, a prophet component and a priestly component. And, and, and in that, uh, we know, because we talked about this last time too, that we know that this is, a, this is a reality that Jesus is going to fulfill ultimately. We're given a picture here that what the people really need is a prophet, priest, and king. As somebody who can bring the word of God to them, somebody who can offer sufficient sacrifices for them, and somebody who can lead them and rule them and bring them to safety. This is the people's need. And Saul is, in a way, picturing that. Uh, but we know there's a, there's a fuller sense coming. And even as we look at this narrative, it's, it's even a little cloudy in the narrative. So B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian, he talked about how when we're studying the Old Testament, uh, we, we, we see Christ everywhere, but it's kind of like walking around in a dark room and bumping into the furniture. You're bumping into these things that you think, oh, this is, there's something significant here. There's something significant here. And then we get into the New Testament and the lights all go on. And we start to see all these things. Right here in Saul's little journey and in these confirmations, we're bumping into stuff. There's this prophet component, this priest component. Saul's anointed as king. These things are being affirmed and confirmed in him. Ultimately, we know the direction this is pointing. 
But at this moment, they're just demonstrating to Saul, at the very least, that he's the one God is going to use. He's the one that people need, and he's the one God's going to use. So this would have been, at some level, an encouragement to Saul. He's not going to have to languish wondering whether all that stuff Samuel was telling me about was just kind of crazy, and, and I've just put that away. I don't know what that was. That was just a really weird day, that whole donkey thing. No, he, he can know. With these signs coming, there's some, some affirmation of all this. So, not only is he anointed, but he engages in these, or he encounters these affirmation-type signs on his way back home. And then, again, in the context of provision for Saul here, we have, we have an expression of that in his empowerment. There's this empowerment that Saul can expect. So in verse 6, we read how the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon Saul when he's with the prophets, and he's going to be transformed. Uh, down in verse 9, we also read that when Saul left Samuel here, uh, God changed his heart. And then all these signs happen to him. Now, now, we do have to be careful that we don't read more than we should into these statements. Uh, this, this change of heart and transformation kind of language might make us want to impose our new covenant theology of conversion on Saul and what's happening here. But that would be pressing it too much. Uh, for one reason, we know the outcome of Saul's life and the, and the, and the transformation that's reflected here is not ultimate in his life. We, we, we know the end. Uh, but also, we can see that what's happening here is often what's described in the context of the book of Judges when God raises up new judges. When God raised up judges, uh, in fact, the language of verse 6 is exactly what we read, I think, four different times with regard to Samson, where the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him, right? And in a similar way, verse 7 speaks of the Lord being with Saul to accomplish what's required. So there's language here that actually doesn't drive us necessarily forward to thinking, oh, Saul's a, a new covenant Christian now. That's not yet. That's still coming. Ezekiel will talk about that too. That's still coming. What's happening here is Saul is being established, in, in a sense, in the line of the judges. He's being equipped by God for this task that's before him, this anointing, this confirming, this empowering set of events is, is, is meant to help us see that at least in some measure, this lacking man whom we first met in chapter 9 is now uh, going to be the divinely equipped man. So God is going to use Saul to bring deliverance as he promised, and this is going to be able to take place because God has uniquely equipped Saul with ability he otherwise had, had nothing of, he, he did not have before, which is so obvious from the beginning of the text. Saul has been made renewed. He's been made new in that sense in which he's now the man equipped for the job. And so, by way of application, we can, we, we can think about this in terms of divine provision in, in, in multiple categories. We, we, we can think about this fracture and fulfillment that we see going on here, and, and we, can, we can make a very uh, clear jump to the fact that, that divine provision centers on God's king. If we're going to understand God's king to be God's king, there is no way around the fact that divine provision must be a component of that. Of course, as we read through uh, the kings that will subsequently come in Israel, there's the ups and downs. David's pretty good. Maybe Solomon will be the guy. But it all, it all gets crumbly there towards the end. Ultimately, what we need as we look forward to the New Testament is not a king who comes uh, merely endowed with divine provision, but we need the king who comes with divine provision. The personification of divine provision is what we need in a king who comes from God, which, of course, is who Jesus is. 
He's not, he's not just the one who, who engages in earthly ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and doing, uh, engaging according to the will of the Father in heaven and all of those kinds of things. But Jesus is divine provision incarnate. That's what he comes to be as our king. He brings us rescue from death through the cross, all of these things. He personifies royal divine provision perfectly. And so we can see there's a climax that this is driving us toward. But even in the, the fractured element that's represented here, there's actually good space for us to take our own encouragement just in terms of how God works through weakness. Because, because Saul was a weak man and God was going to use him. And, th- and, that's, and that's fine and that's nice. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's good to know that, that, that God is going to use weakness here. But, but as things are fleshed out, we, we have a fuller picture in seeing that God doesn't just through, work through weak people full stop. More than that, God actually empowers weak people. He transforms them for the sake of His divine purposes. And this is important for us to have in our minds because it can be that we find ourselves in a place of, of weakness in our Christian lives. And realizing our weakness, we can be tempted to, to give ourselves permission to, I can't think of a better word, wallow in that weakness because we know the Lord can work through it. We know God is a God who works through weakness and we can, we can give ourselves permission to, to sit with that. And of course, it's true, he does, he does work in these ways. But we can also be reminded that the real progress and usefulness uh, starts to manifest itself in our Christian lives when we, when we recognize that God doesn't just use us in our weakness, but he actually empowers us in our weakness to be useful. And there's an important distinction there. Saul was, was anointed, confirmed, and empowered. He, he was weak, but he wasn't left weak. He was weak, but the Lord made him strong. We are made strong by God's grace for usefulness in his purposes. So, so through Jesus' cross and resurrection, we know ultimately these things that kind of happened to Saul that were confirmed and in a way that the fullness of that blessing is applied to us through the Spirit's own ministry in our life. The Spirit of God now that doesn't anoint us like Saul was anointed as king, but more than that, the Spirit of God now dwells in us. And the Spirit of God uh, confirms, like Saul was confirmed here, the Spirit of God confirms that grace of God to us. You remember how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being given as a kind of down payment to us. There's a confirmation function of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God grants the strength we need to, to carry out God's purposes in our lives. So, so, so the amazing thing is not ultimately that God works through us in our fractured weakness to fulfill His purposes. The amazing thing is that he grants us the divine provision we need to fulfill his purposes with his strength. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul doesn't say, when I am weak, then I am weak. Sometimes it can seem like like as Christian believers, we can get lost in thinking that that, um, I can almost revel in my weakness. When I am weak, I'm weak, and we're, we're satisfied with that because God works through weakness, and that's, that's kind of true, but that's not actually what Paul says in a passage like that. No, he says, when I am weak, I am strong. Why? Because in my weakness, Paul says what? Christ's power resides in me. Paul doesn't say he's left weak. He says he has the power of the second person of the Trinity residing in him. There's more strength in that than we can comprehend. 
You see, you see so, so Saul was weak, but God didn't leave him there. Instead, he affected Saul with his power. In chapter 10, verse 6 and 10, we see that. And, and, and we have to make that parallel. We're weak. We know this about our lives as we seek to go on in a faithful gospel way. We are weak, but God doesn't leave us weak. Personal weakness in the kingdom of God is overcome by the divine provision of strength that comes from God. That's why Peter can say things like, how do we serve? Do I serve in my own strength? No, how do I serve? I serve in the strength God supplies, which is no small modicum of strength, strength in the living God. And, and, and we can be encouraged by this this morning. I needed this encouragement this week, but we can know God doesn't just use the weak for His purposes. He takes the weak, empowers us, and then sends us out to do the work. So it may be that, that, that your prayers could be re renewed in categories like this. For, for example, we might pray and, and say things like, Lord, I know I'm weak, but I also know that you've called me to be fruitful. I know that you've called me to be a faithful employee. I know you've called me to be a caring friend. I know you've called me to be a gentle and patient spouse. You've called me to be a nurturing parent, or you've called me to be a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who's holy in thought, word, and deed. And Lord, rather than, than excuse myself from these callings because of my weakness, we can say things like, I appeal to you, O Lord, to give me the strength that you supply so that I may walk in this new way that you've, that you've called me to. May you fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I, in my weakness, may be strengthened by Christ's own power residing in me and I may go on then in that way that you call me to go. So, so, so fracture and fulfillment here, we, we're weak, we know that, Saul's weak. But in the Lord's kindness, He fulfills His promise and doesn't just use us in our weakness. That's just half the story. He doesn't just use us in our weakness. He actually grants the divine provision we need to be strong in His way, which is way more strength than we would ever have if we were to even say, the Lord uses my strength. It's Christ's strength Himself that resides in us. So, so that's just a, a helpful perspective that Saul's testimony here uh, gives to us. The man who has to take off his socks to count to 20 is now empowered by, by God to do this enormous work. What happened? The weak man is given the strength of God himself. And Saul will carry out that task. Saul will have, have a few good moments in battle. So Saul receives this divine provision. And then, uh, in the rest of this section, and this will be, we'll, we'll do this a little more, uh, this will be shorter, uh, but we, we can see one more thing, and it's this. Uh, even with this anointing and confirmation and empowerment for Saul, we move from Saul's divine provision to, to facing this fact that with Saul, we are still left with some residual tension here at the end. There's residual tension, verses, verses uh, 10 to 16 of chapter 10. Um, when Julia and I were first married, as surprising as this may sound, I, I often did things that uh, brought her a great amount of agitation. Um, of course, I never do anything that bothers her now, but I used to do things that bother her. And, and being newly married and generally dim when it came to these kinds of things, after I tried to correct my mistake, Julia wouldn't immediately be happy and feel better. And I just couldn't understand it. Surprise, surprise. She, she wasn't just, everything wasn't just fixed right away. Uh, I'd done something hurtful or annoying or whatever it was, but I'd admitted it. I, I, I saw what I did. I said I was sorry for what, what, what I did. Why in the world was she still upset? It was a total mystery to me. Uh, and, and, and she finally had to explain that, that what, was, what, what was happening was she was having a case of residual. That's what she would call it. I'm, I'm just ha I'm having residuals. And, and what that meant, 
You know what she meant. She meant that while things were better, there's still this leftover agitation over whatever it is that I'd done that might take an afternoon, it might take an evening. I might need to be quiet for a whole Saturday. Well, she just gets a little space to reorient after all the, the annoyance that I'd, that I'd caused. She had residual agitation. Um, now, now, we get to these, these verses, and we see that there is some narrative residual here. It's not residual agitation, like if I bother Julia. Instead, we find that even though we have, have seen the Lord is powerful, uh, providing for Saul in his role as king and all of these kinds of things, there are still some elements of this story that leave us with tension. And we see this show up in our verses in a few different ways. Um, so, so actually, back in, in verse 9 of chapter 10, we're told all these confirming signs took place after Saul left Samuel. And then now in verse 10... The narrator focuses on just the third sign, the sign of the prophet's engagement with Saul. Saul's going to run into these prophets, and we're given some further details about that one particular sign. So in verse 10, the prophets come out to meet Saul, and, and there the Spirit of God came powerfully on Saul, just like Samuel said would happen. Saul prophesied all that, just like Samuel said. But then there are questions. Verse 11, we read, Everyone who knew Saul previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And, and we're told uh, this actually goes on to become a saying, which, which with negative connotations we'll see later on in other chapters. Uh, but, but we know that Saul has experienced something of, of the divine provision and confirmation of God here. Um, but, but it is hard, at the very least, it's hard for people to believe that, that Saul, I mean the son of Kish, Saul, is actually endowed with this kind of spirit of God in this way. Remember, this is his hometown. The people know him. Handsome? Dim. Right? And in fact, as, as, the, as the narrative continues, we'll see that, that some actually can't get on, on board with supporting him as king. In verse 26, some say, how can this guy save us? And they despised him. So there, there's, there's going to be some, some stuff going on there. So, so it's hard to believe Saul can be the guy who's now prophesying. And then another question is asked in verse 12, where we read a man who was from there. Again, he knows him. A man who is from there asked, and who is their father? That's a way of, of asking who's the head of the prophets. So we read this kind of language in places like 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, for example. It's a way of, of asking who's the prophet, who's the leader of these prophets. So, so what seems to be happening here is, is that Saul prophesies, but, but this is not a source of encouragement to at least the people present in his hometown. This is a source of concern to them. It just doesn't seem like Saul should be a prophet. So, so then the question comes, who's in charge of this group? Like, who let Saul in? Of course, we know that, that, that it's actually Samuel who is the lead prophet. He's the father of the prophet, so to speak. And it's Samuel who's been directing this all the way, embracing him into his family, all of these kinds of things. So as the, as the, as the readers, we're let in on some of this. But the people don't know that. And, and it just doesn't seem right to them. So, so there's residual tension on this point. Saul was anointed as king. We, we know that as the reader. But the question out there in the general public is, who is this guy? Who, what, what is going on with this guy? And the tension is compounded when we look at verse 14 and we find Saul back at home. So he's back home. He's met by his uncle, which is strange to begin with because his dad was the one worried about him. But he's met by his uncle. Some commentators take this to be an indicator that Saul is actually embraced in the family of the prophets, and so there's a family dynamic shift. This isn't his dad now, it's his uncle, because we know he has a new father in a spiritual sense. Some go there, I don't know. It could also just be Abner, his uncle, who we also meet later on, but it's interesting to think about. Anyway, uncle, uncle shows up, guy comes out, and, and asks him where he went. Saul replies, I went to look for the donkeys, and when we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. 
And then the uncle asks, what did Samuel see? And this is a big moment. Because we know that back in verse 27 of chapter 9, Samuel revealed the word of the Lord to Saul. He anointed Saul as king. Samuel had, had huge words for Saul. In fact, e- even though Saul had just had this run-in with some of these naysayers, Samuel had said, do you remember in, in, in uh, chapter 9 verse 20, he would have said that all, he said all Israel desired Saul. So, so this would have been a really great time for Saul to vindicate himself with Samuel's words. This whole little run-in I had with the prophets out here, they're all kind of making fun of me. You know what Samuel told me? You know what the prophet's word was? All of Israel wants me. A few naysayers maybe, but all Israel wants me. This would have been a fine time for Saul to vindicate himself. But, and, and, and what we would expect at this point of the story is, is something like that. Quite a story about what's gone on. But how does Saul respond? Verse 16, well, Samuel told me the donkeys had been found. And then we're told Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. So, so you see how we're left with this residual tension. The people are questioning what's really going on here. What in the world is Saul doing prophesying? His uncle asks him what happened, and all Saul does is talk about the donkeys. Um, there, there, there's this residual tension in the anointing of Saul. His royal status is, is not made known yet. And in fact, there's, there's actually an element of secrecy around Saul's anointing that, that uh, has, has shown up throughout this text in a few different ways. So, so it strikes us odd earlier. You remember when Samuel tells Saul to go to that feast? And, and Samuel says that these 30 other men or so have already been, been gathered into this. They're all going to join in this feast. They were gathered before when Samuel was making all these plans because the word of the Lord had come to him earlier, all of these kinds of things. Samuel says nothing about what's going on to those 30 men in that narrative, as is recorded. He leaves them in the dark. That must have been a really strange feast. Why in the world is Saul getting the priestly portion of the food? Samuel says nothing there. Then back in verse 27 of chapter 9, when Samuel anoints Saul as king, he sends the servant on ahead first, so they're alone for the ceremony. Now, if we're thinking back through this, we're thinking, man, the only reason Saul's been able to put one foot in front of the other is because that servant's been with him the whole way. If he's going to get a big word, the servant ought to be there just to make sure this goes in the direction. No, Samuel sends a servant away. It's just the two of them, which seems strange. Then here, Saul doesn't tell the people ridiculing him about what happened, nor does he tell his uncle about what happened. He's, he's silent about this whole anointing thing. And, and while that's strange, uh, so some will say, you know, in the immediacy of the circumstances, there can be reason for this. Maybe, maybe it's just that, that, that Samuel and Saul don't want to work up the garrisons of the Philistines that are in town, like we read about uh, back, in, back in verse 5. So, so the immediate announcement of a king in Israel would definitely give the Philistines cause to be riled up. And that may be the, the immediate reason for the secrecy, though the military tensions, they don't, they don't stop anyone from acting in the chapters to come. So there's also that. It doesn't seem like quite enough of a reason. He already told Saul to do whatever's in his heart to do. The Lord's going to empower him. So that seems like a strange one. Um, in, in terms of the narrative itself, that there may be something more important to see here. It, it seems like the author is communicating something that might be a little bit more, more subtle, but certainly speaks to these residual tensions who are left with Saul, that are left around Saul as king. Um, we talked about this a bit last time, but in Hebrew narrative, when a word is repeated, it's like the ancient form of, of highlighting something that the author wants you to see. We use italicized print or whatever it might be. And the Hebrew text, words are repeated for that effect. And in this narrative, we talked about how one of the repeated words multiple times is that word up. That's a word of significance that we talked about last time. But we also have the repeated word found in this passage. 
In fact, the Hebrew word for found shows up in chapter 9, verse 4 for the first time, and then down in, in chapter 10, verse 16 for the last time, and then 10 other times in between. So for a total of 12 times, the word found shows up. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a whole bunch. And then uh, the word translated as tell is also found a whole bunch in this narrative. And in fact, in verse 16 of chapter 9, we have a word translated there as, as ruler or prince. If you're reading from the ESV, it says prince. When the Lord is speaking about anointing Saul and his position, it's a strange word. It's not the normal word for king, but it, but it is actually the same word that has the Hebrew vowels as the word tell. There's a, there's a, there's a text, uh, text connection there between that. In other words, pay attention to this. And then the word tell is repeated a whole bunch of other times throughout this. So, so if we're reading this section, if we were just the first readers reading this in Hebrew, this stuff would stick out like a sore thumb to us as we're reading, wouldn't it? These words repeated, we start to notice, found, 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 tell, 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 tell. Uh, there, there, there's all this repetition. And, and those words, what are those words? But they're revelatory words, aren't they? Right? They're words about discovering and, and making things known, finding and telling. But it's strange because this whole episode of anointing has it been a narrative that celebrates finding the king the people need and telling everyone about it? No. And not at all. It's a narrative of secrecy. No one knows what's going on in this whole series of events except Samuel and Saul. And so we're left with this tension. Found, 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 found. Tell, 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 tell. But should we really? Right? We're back at this point of wondering, is Saul really the king the people need? Is Saul really the king that's worth announcing? And of course, we know the answer to that. It's a biblical narrative uh, building up of tension to, to make us make sure we're always at ar arriving at the right conclusion as we go along. Is Saul going to be the guy? What's the answer? The answer is no. Saul's not the guy. The Lord will work through Saul for his purpose, but Saul is fractured. And from this passage, we're still left with this residual tension that causes us to anticipate fulfillment. Because the king who comes, who, who does not remain concealed in his royalty, in fact, we're going to see this very interestingly in, in David's uh, own, own coming to, to, to reign, but the king who ultimately comes doesn't remain concealed in his royalty, but he, what does he do? Well, he sends out his disciples to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. Right? We, we're left with residual tension here. Things aren't right quite yet because ultimately Saul's not the king that, that we ultimately proclaim. We're left there because Saul's not Jesus. And so, and so there's that tension that's present in our text, but that's a, that's a tension actually present in our lives with, with anyone or anything that we can look to for fulfillment apart from our need, apart from the person of Christ. Remember, there's an idolatry problem going on through these passages. We, we might think this might help me in my life. That might bring relief. There may be a glimmer of hope because of that person or that need being met, but, but is, is my true rescue found in those things? Is this what I'm really going to tell everyone about has come and made my life whole and complete and all of that? No, we're not. Because our rescue is ultimately found in Christ. And until we find Him, we have no true hope to tell about. So there's that, that parallel here with the idolatry that's going on. There's fracture and fulfillment. The Lord's going to work through these disordered circumstances. Uh, but here is until we, until we get to who the people's king really is, who we really need the king to be, the, the, the entirety of the scriptural narrative leaves us with this tension. There is one who's going to come who we want to speak about, who we actually find fulfills all of our needs. And until we get there, silence. No finding, no telling, because we don't have it. 
And so it just reminds us to be drawn back to center, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are wonderful uh, things that we may, we may discover. There are wonderful uh, sources of, of encouragement and these kinds of things that can be found. But like we've talked about with the idolatry that runs through here, they're all, uh, none of them are worthy of our, of, our, of our proclamation except the Lord Jesus himself. And as we find ourselves in that place, we ultimately find ourselves in the exact position the narrative is driving us. A whole bunch of finding, a whole bunch of telling, but he's not the guy. Because Jesus is the guy. And we're reminded of that from a passage like this. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that we would be directed to Christ, that we'd see him as the glorious king, the savior, the perfect prophet, priest, and king that we need. Uh, we revel in the fact that your, your uh, word drives us to him. And we ask for the help of the Spirit of God, uh, not just to empower us for holy living and, and living in response to Christ, but you would empower us, uh, Holy Spirit, to see Christ for who he is. And we would, we would have that assurance in our own hearts. We ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.